you know, for guys who come up here and preach, you know, we're kind of like teamsters. If you know what a teamster is, part of the brotherhood of truck drivers. And what we do is we haul cargo from heaven to earth through God's word, hopefully working off the same interstate system of your mind to be able to bring these things to you. This says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, that those who speak, speak as if you have the utterances of God because you do. So, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 22. And especially tonight, I have to tell you uh, what is really on my heart is I want to speak to the children, to the young folks. I think they outnumber the adults. And many times when I I say that as a preface in my message, the adults say, oh, goody, I'll be able to understand. (laughs) And I get that. I understand that. Matthew 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my, fi- my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here's the point of the parable. Jesus gives it in verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are invited, but few are seated. I want to speak to you this evening, if I can, on making your invitation a reservation. In the Old Covenant, and I attribute this little illustration to Richard Lovelace in his books on the dynamics of spiritual life, but he gives a great illustration of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Saints under the Old Covenant, saints under the New Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, he said, the Old Covenant is like a sponge that God has 
created. And he takes this sponge and he dips it into the oil. And he takes the, the sponge full of oil and he puts it into the dirty river. And when he puts the oil-filled sponge in the dirty river, it can go down the dirty river and none of the dirt from the dirty river will get inside the sponge because it's full of oil. Oil and water won't mix. That's kind of like being under the law. But in the new covenant, he doesn't do that. He takes the sponge and he doesn't dip it in oil. He dips it in wine. And he takes the sponge and he puts it in the dirty river. And the wine permeates the dirty river and begins to transform the river. Another great example of the two distinctions is around the Ark of the Covenant. You know what the Ark of the Covenant is. Numbers chapter 4, God gives specific directions to Moses. He says, now Moses, you're going to be in the wilderness and we're going to go from pillar to post. We're going to be moving around in this wilderness. And when we stop, this is how we're supposed to operate. When we move, these are the people who come in and these are the people and only these people are the people who are to touch this, cover that, whatever. And you can read it. It's in Numbers 4. He talks about it. Aaron and his sons, they come in and they're to cover all the, the uh, holy objects and things of this sort. And then you had the Colathites there to come in. And they're, to, they're the teamsters. They're the ones who transport these things. Moses and his crew are in packaging. The Colathites are in transportation. And what you find is specific directions for what people are supposed to do. The Miriarites. And these are, the, these are families in the tribe of Levi. Now, while that's important, and while I'm going into some detail here with you, is that when you read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, you want to see the mercy of God. In the chapters before, in 1 Samuel, the Israelites went out and fought the Philistines and lost. They even thought it was a great idea to bring the Ark of the Covenant out there so that they could fight the battle with the Ark of the Covenant. God's with us because we got the Ark of the Covenant with us. And the Philistines captured it. And then you know the story that it got put into the temple with Dagon and Dagon lost pieces of his furniture and things of that sort. And then they said, we don't want this thing. So they put it on this cart and they, or this pulled by these cows and it went to Israel and it stayed in a man's place for a while. And then David said he's going to transport it to Jerusalem. And so he puts the ark on the cart and it's going to Jerusalem. An ark on a cart isn't found in Numbers 4. God was merciful. Until something upset the cart and the ark began to fall and Uzzah tried to help God out by catching the ark and he loses his life. All of a sudden, it's a wake-up call. We need to start go back to read the book. We need to figure out what Brother Lee was telling us about, right? We need those Colathites guys to come in here. They're the right teamsters to move this thing here. But under the new covenant, there's a different kind of ark. It says in John 1 that he came and he tabernacled among the people. And here's that sponge full of oil and the man tries to help God out and you never try to help God out. 
Never put yourself in a benefactor role and putting God in a beneficiary role. He'll never be a beneficiary. He'll always be a benefactor. Why? Because it's always more blessed to give than it is to receive. And he will be the ultimate blesser. But in the new covenant, we have that ark, Jesus Christ. And here's this woman here. She has a hemorrhage. She has a blood issue. She can't get healing. And she doesn't have a promise in the world. Well, you know what she's thinking? If I can just touch the ark. Are you kidding me? Did you read 2 Samuel 6 and see what happened to the guy who tried to help God out? But she's not trying to help God out. I'm trying to get God to help me. And she touches the ark and it's a different experience. Because under the new covenant, the sponge is full of wine. And what we have here in Matthew 22 is an example of that. This isn't a judge subpoenaing people to come to court. This is a king inviting people to come. And you'll notice he says, he calls out to these people, sent the slaves out, and they were unwilling to come. So he doubles down on the effort in verse 4. So he says, well, let me appeal to them now a little bit more toward their senses. They look, all the fatted calf. I mean, all these things are done. I mean, the food's going to be great. And they say this and they say that. And some are even intolerant. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not coming. You can't be chosen unless you're called. That's what he says in verse 14. You can't have a reservation unless you have an invitation. Now, there are different groups of people in this section here as they relate to the invitation. The first group... You, it's not hard to see, are the people whose invitation gets lost in the mail. It's lost in the mail. They never receive an invitation. Over 40% of the population on this earth, over 3 billion people, 7,000 people groups, never heard the gospel, never get an invite. But you're not one of them. Every single one of you in here are being invited. You can't use that. They'll rise up on Judgment Day and say, what? You got invited and you did what? Oh, that's right. I've got a volleyball game i got to think about before I think about God. Oh, that's right. i got to win that game out there with the putt-putt. i got to make sure I do that. Things that are good, but not things that are best. Your soul is at stake. You're being invited to come to the king. We've heard many examples of that in the messages already. It's funny, these people that never receive the invitation, you know, they have enough knowledge, it says in Romans 1, to be condemned, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God, but not enough knowledge, according to Romans 10, to be saved. Enough to be condemned, not enough to be saved, and that's where you come in. We're called to invite. God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth of Him. That's His desire. Now, another group here, 
are people that, it's not an invitation that gets lost in the mail, but it's an invitation that gets lost in translation. <laughs> they got other things going on here. It gets filed in with the junk mail, with the aluminum siding and things of this sort that comes in and, you know, they don't prioritize it. It's like in the parable of the sower. It's the seed that falls into the crowded ground, remember, and the weeds and stuff, and it chokes it out. And then you got a group, it doesn't get lost in translation, but just, you know, as it... As you see this guy later on, it's going to get lost in the details. I have an invitation here. It's from the Queen of England. It's an invitation. It's a royal invite to Prince William's wedding in 2011. It's a real deal. It's got the wax seal in the back, the whole bit. Let's break it and find out what it says. You pull it out, Lord Chamberlain is commanded by the queen to invite. It's got a blank and you put your name on it. There it is. They write it out. To the marriage of His Royal Highness Prince William of Wales and Miss Catherine Middleton at Westminster Abbey on Friday, 29th of April, 2011, 11 a.m. Now, I got to admit, this guy here that he's going to get thrown out. At least he put this on the refrigerator and had saved the date on it. He did something better than the other ones with their intolerance and persecuted the slaves and said, I had more important things to do, like, I don't know, catching up on Survivor episodes or something on TV or something to that effect. Couldn't come. But no, this guy saw this comes in the mail and said, this is, yeah, this is it. This is good stuff. But if you'll notice on the invitation, of course, you can't see it, but in all invitations, in the bottom right-hand corner, in small print, that's what happens when you don't pay attention to details. Dress, colon. This is what you're supposed to wear. Morning coat, uniform, or a lounge suit. And that's right. You can't come with the flip-flops, tie-dye shirts, and come to the wedding thinking you're going to a tailgating party. This is a royal invite. So this man comes, and what does he do? All of a sudden, he's speechless. He's there without a wedding garment. Remember, you can come as you are because he go, they go out there and they get the good and the evil. Come on in, come on, come on. Come as you are. No, 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 no stop. Come as, come as you are, come as you are. You just can't stay as you were. Yeah, but wait a minute, what am I going to wear? I've got to get one of those fancy big hats and everything. No, 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 no. See, just come as you are. And if you read on the bottom of the invite from God, it will say, garments provided. Inquire within. And if you don't read that, you just kind of fly through it, you'll have a problem. You won't be able to stay. You'll have an invitation, but you won't have a reservation. So what is this garment that we're supposed to wear that's a wedding garment? 
What does it look like? Do you have one of those? We were asked the question last night, what is a Christian? He was asking the most basic of questions. Now, this is where I'm speaking to the kids. Because kids, this is where sometimes you zone out on me. I don't want you zoning out on me right here. I'm talking to you. If God's going to bring you into, and the invite is to you, as well as it is to mommy and daddy. This isn't mommy and daddy's conference. This is your conference. God brought you here for a reason. He invited you. You got an invitation. Not just mommy and daddy. You got one. Really? Yeah. Got my name on it. Got your name on it. God's got you here. So listen up. How many of you have ever taken a test in school? Yeah, we've taken a few of those things, huh? Yuck. <laughs> I get it. I understand. The teacher passes out the test, and she says, you know, fill in the blanks and all of this, or check the boxes or whatever it might be, or circle the letters. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, the wedding garment. You've got to have one. He's not ashamed of it. And he says, let me tell you a little bit about the heart of the wedding garment. The heart of the wedding garment in Romans chapter 1 is righteousness. God's righteousness. Not God's love, which is important. God's mercy, grace, all those things. are. But the heart of the gospel, the heart of the wedding garment is righteousness. And what does that big word mean? Righteousness means I'm right with something. I'm right with a standard. I practice righteousness when I drive my car, when I obey the laws of the road. I'm being righteous. I'm standing on the right-hand side of the road if I'm in America. I'm stopping at stop signs and things of this sort. If I was to give you this little test, here's your righteousness. Your name's at the top. And here's the questions. Number one, righteousness. On a scale from one to ten, rate your righteousness. I always serve the Lord with all my heart, mind, and soul and body. That includes how I use my time, how I use my body parts, my eyes don't lust, my hands don't fight or steal, feet don't roam, mind doesn't forget God's word, how intense I love God. Just that one question on a score from zero to ten, what would you put as your number? That's just the first question. Not a bunch. Welcome to righteousness. It has to do with performance. It has to do with how you interact with what God expects from you as a creature. And on Judgment Day, kids, he is going to ask you for this. And at the bottom, it has to have a 100. You're in a pickle. You're in a fix. Because if you didn't put 10 down for every, and I don't even give you all the questions. I mean, all the things that you could ask. I've never lust for the opposite sex for sexual gratification. I never steal from anyone. I never lie or shade the truth. I'm just kind of going down the Ten Commandments and embellishing them. Zero to ten, how would you rate your performance? Well, I'm not too bad. I'm about a five or six. Really? And then when you get to the end, you've got to put a number. 68, 42, pharisaical, 98. Christ comes along and he does what? He gets a perfect score on all of them. Well, that's great for him. He gets to go to heaven. And so the teacher, your teacher kids, 
She grades the test like God, and everybody has an F. F, F, F. But she says, you know what I've done? I've taken this guy. He's the best student in the class named Jesus Christ, and I've taken his righteousness, and I've Xeroxed him. I've Xeroxed a bunch of copies, and I've put it up here on the front. What I want you to do is when you turn in your paper, grab a copy of his, put it on top of yours, turn it in, and this is what I'll score it. That's salvation. But now, where does faith come in? Aha. Faith is what holds it together. Has nothing to do with righteousness, and some people have a lot of faith. And some people have very little faith. On Judgment Day, God's not looking for the, the paper clip. He's looking for this. Do you have this? You can have the smallest of the smallest, like the thief on the cross. Will you remember me in paradise? He says, yes, I'll remember you. And he takes a broken little paper clip here and puts it together and is holding on by a thread. And it's just, he's just as righteous as the guy who has all the faith in the world. So while faith keeps Christ's righteousness attached to my failure so that I'm righteous in God's sight, this isn't what he's looking for on judgment day. It's this. Is he righteous in my sight? All God expects from me and you on a day-to-day basis when it comes to this justification is just to continue to believe. Now let me tell you where the problem comes in. Because there's a problem. This sounds great. Wow, this is wonderful. Problem comes in, and it could have come in with this guy with the garment. Where all of a sudden I start listening to things and reading things and start saying, well, you know, my tribalism is important in order for me to have a right standing with God. We're getting inundated with wokeism today. And your identifying moniker you go by is your tribalism. Let me show you the difference between the two, and it's very subtle. It's one of those kind of subtle things that you can kind of slip in here and add it to the righteousness of Jesus. You could get there and say, you know, I think they need to be circumcised, they'll say in the book of Acts. Adding something to that perfect test score. And when an apostle does that, and all he does is move his plate from one table to the next, and Paul calls him out on it because he's not being true to the gospel, because he's adding something in his tribalism. You know what tribalism is. It's how you identify with your ethnic group or your gender group or whatever else group you want to say that you need to have in order to be able to follow Jesus Christ. And that's heresy. Notice the difference in these two sentences. I am a black Christian. I am a Christian who happens to be black. First one, the identifying is putting on the emphasis on black. The second one is on Christian. 
I'm a female Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be female. The issue is Christ and Christ alone has got to be our identifier. Nothing else. That's our DNA as we heard last night. And if you, and the temptation is to put something else here. And this is where Paul comes in and says, you have fallen from grace. You, do, you add nothing to what Christ has done. And the way you prove that is that there is no male or female in the body of Christ. There's no black or white or Asian or red or whatever. There's no young or old, smart or dumb or whatever else you might want to put as a dividing line. And God's going to put those people around you and it's going to say, call him your brother with no strings attached. He has the same test score on top of his paper as you do. Quit looking to put something else underneath the paper clip. Don't do it. Be the same thing, for example, if I want to use the wedding garment illustration. If I have the wedding garment and then all of a sudden I want to put, well, you know, I'm kind of cold. I want to put my jacket on. You're covering up the wedding garment. You can't do that. You do that, Christ is being dishonored. And notice the attitude that the king has toward the guy who comes in without the wedding clothes. What does he say to the guy? They say, bind him hand and foot. I mean, this is the same reaction to the people who didn't come. That killed his slaves. You must respect and honor the son. The son will be honored in all things. We heard that this morning with Michael Durham's message. It's not about what we do. It's not about how we perform. We know we don't have the performance needed. But it is about Christ. You're as holy as Jesus Christ. Now, this is the hard part. He expects you to act that way in His presence. You had a royal wedding. If you want your invitation to be a reservation and you have a seat at the table, then you have to remember you're there on behalf of somebody else's ticket in. They provided the garment. I'm wearing their garment. And you know something? When we all wear the same garment, I can't say I'm better than you. I can't, you can't point to that person. Oh, look, they got a fancy hat. I didn't have a hat. Oh, this guy's got a top hat and a cane. No, sorry, it won't work. You can't overdress or underdress for this occasion. It's like a school uniform. Everybody wears the same uniform. So I'm not more holy than you are or less. So when someone comes into the assembly, like James says, you don't tell this person to sit over here at my footstool because he's poor or sit over there in some elevated position because you're rich. You're wearing that garment. You have this test score, kids. Wouldn't you like to be able to have a test score like that? Come up to the front and get a hundred. And the hard part is to be able to keep it together. Many are called, few are chosen. Now the last thing in this little section here we want to look at is that here are the invitations that never get rejected. They always result in reservations. It's this. It says in verse 14, many are called. 
God's calling every single person in this room. He's, here's your invite. But your invitation isn't the righteousness of Christ. It's an invite to come and take the righteousness of Christ. There's the fine print for your garment. You're being invited to come to Christ. But one of the things we understand and one of the things we have to recognize, kind of like these people here in this banquet hall, is that God has desires and then God has desires. The desires that are stronger desires are called decrees. And not every decree is a desire and not every desire is a decree. How can that be? Well, Ephesians chapter 1, for example, verse 5 Paul says that because of the kind intention of his will, he's done some things. The kind intention, desire of his decree. There's some people who's the desire of God and the decree are going to be the same. And then there's others, like it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he desires all men to be saved. But then we ask the question, well, then how come all people aren't saved? He wants everybody. He's inviting everybody. Well, shouldn't everybody have a garment? If he wants them there, why didn't he keep them there? Why didn't he decree them to stay there? 1 Timothy chapter 2 talks about how he desires all. In fact, he talks about how our prayers are around that, praying for all men and all these stations of life because God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But then we read in the next book, 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord's bondservant must be patient, kind to all, gentle. That God might perhaps grant repentance. And they come to the knowledge of the truth and they escape the snare of the devil being held captive by him to do his will. Grant repentance. And not everybody has repentance, that's right. Which means never, not everybody comes to the knowledge of the truth. But wait, I just thought in 1 Timothy, he wants everybody to come to the knowledge of the truth. And you'll make the logical faux pas if you start thinking from that, from that desire, everything has to be a decree. And the people that struggle with that are Arminians. That's why they're here. They think decree and desire should be the same. God has a desire, bro, then this going to happen. I mean, he has to have it. That's his desire. And not necessarily so. It's just like me, for example, I like to play the guitar. That's a desire I have. It's not a decree. I don't sell everything I have and move to Juilliard up in New York to try to learn how to play guitar. It's not that kind of a desire. But it is a desire. Someone says, you, don't, you really don't want to play that. No, you can't say that. I really do. In Exodus chapter 4, we have a great example of this. And, it, and it's right there with Pharaoh. In verse 21, God says, and the Lord said to Pharaoh, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your, in your power. Make sure you do that, Moses. Perform all these things. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And this is the next verse. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go. There's God's desire. He's telling Pharaoh. 
let my son go. Is that God's desire? Well, yeah, he's telling him to let my son go, that he may serve me. But you refuse to let him go. Behold, I will kill you. I will kill your son, your firstborn. Tells Moses in verse 21, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to harden his heart and he's not going to let, the kid, let my son go, decree. But you go and deliver the goods and you tell him what I desire. There are things God will decree that he doesn't desire. He decrees the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in Acts 2. It's decreed. He says it's predestined. And it comes about through the things he doesn't desire. The sins of men, the sins of Herod, the sins of Pilate, the sins of the Jewish people. All those things are sins. And anytime you're sinning against God, he doesn't desire that. He has commands that say, do not murder. That's his desire. And guess what? People murder. And when you look at that and you say, wow. Obviously, God decreed that to happen. Excuse me? And we scratch our head and say, wait a minute. Your, your desires and decrees should be the same. And they're not. He desires what he decrees. Many times he desires what he doesn't decree. Desires men to come. Desires, desires men to repent and to believe, it says in 2 Peter 3. None should perish. And yet some come. And then others who have been invited gets lost in translation. Gets lost in the mail. What's going on here? Those are the hidden secret things of God in Deuteronomy 29, 29. But you have been invited. You can't use that as an excuse. You, 40, over 40% of the population today is going to rise up and are going to say to you, excuse me, you had an invite. And you didn't come and take the test score that's supposed to be Freely given? I never got that chance. You don't give cadavers chances. They're cadavers. They're dead in trespasses and sins. And there you were, once under the wrath of God. God's desire for you at one time was hell. It says it in Ephesians 2. We were by nature children of wrath. And in that Kodak moment, if you could see God's desire like he had against Moses because he wouldn't circumcise his son, and he was angry at Moses and would have killed him if he kept on going straight with an uncircumcised son. Says it. But there's a bigger desire for Moses and a bigger desire for you called his love. And it controls the Kodak moment of I am displeased. He's under my wrath right now. If he was to die, to die right now, he'd go to hell. But he ain't going to die right now. I'm going to see to it that he doesn't die right now. And that he continues and has that appointment with the Holy Spirit. And I'll say to him, live. And I'll have never, never will I have wrath against him again because of my son, Jesus Christ. And he will have a perfect test score. But don't think God can't have more than one affection or emotion working at the same time on you. We see that in our relationship versus our fellowship. My relationship with God is one of based on love as we heard this morning. Romans 8, we read it, was unbelievable. Nothing can separate from the love of God. 
But don't think God can be angry or upset or disappointed or whatever and will put his finger on a sin in your life. But that's motivated by love. And how God can have that type of affections for all kinds of people at one time on an individual basis and on a corporate basis is beyond thought. Think of God's affections like the ocean. As the top of the ocean interacts with the atmosphere and there's tumultuous waves. But the bottom of the ocean, nothing moves. God's character, at the bo- I mean, nothing moves. And that love that He has for us is based in Christ. Is based here in a perfect righteousness and He's going to treat us this way. Like He treats Christ. That's why He says, come boldly before the throne of grace. This is my affection towards you and it never wanes. One of love. One of acceptance. And you, with an unveiled face, get to go into His presence while the angels have to veil their face around you. The seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy. With veiled face, they don't get to see what you see. Because they weren't redeemed like you were redeemed. They don't wear a righteousness like you wear that was freely given. And it's held in this life (laughs) by the slimmest of things, right? But what you don't see that holds this together, as it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, talks to the saints, he says, kept by the power of God, is that he he staples it through the Holy Spirit. It's not going anywhere. Oh, but my faith is weakened in everything. Oh, I know. But I've got it stapled. The Holy Spirit is going to keep it together. So kids, pay attention here. You need to have a perfect righteousness. If I brought you to the cemetery right now, I could point out some, some grave markers that has the kids in their, in that cemetery there, in that grave, children your age. Oh, look, here's a little boy here. He died. He was seven years old. You mean seven-year-olds can die? Mm-hmm. Disease, car accidents, whatever. And where do they go? I don't know. But do they have one of these? I know this. You've been invited which means it's ratcheted up. You now know. And the more you know, the more you're held accountable. To him who knew his master's will and didn't do it, to him greater stripes than him who, who didn't know. So knowledge, as they say, knowledge is power, but knowledge is also something that you don't want to be caught with and now I've got to account for it. When I grew up, I was the oldest in the, of the kids. So when it came time for a, a good old spanking for all of us doing something wrong, I got the worst. Why? Because you're the oldest. <laughs> you should, what? Know better, see? So now, kids, you know. You've been invited. You come to Christ. You, you pray. Mommy and Daddy can't give you this. Jesus Christ has to give you this. And you can ask Him for it tonight. And he will give you his righteousness. How do I know that? Because he says it. He says, you know, I desire you to have it. I want you to have it. Now, while we can talk about decrees and people who don't get it and get it and whatever, whatever, that's fine and dandy. But the bottom line is that he's not disingenuous. If he desires you to have it, he wants you to have it. 
So come and dine. The master calleth, come and dine. You can fellowship at his table all the time. Come and eat. Come and drink. Do you have a reservation? I know you got an invitation, but do you have a reservation? Don't be caught short with simply appearing before God with an invite. And a save-the-date magnet on the refrigerator. And yet you never thought to read the fine print and to make sure, Lord, help me to have the right garment. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to give us that tonight. If you've never done that, you need to do that. Why not tonight? You might not get another opportunity to ask him for that. So you take advantage of that tonight. Preacher is encouraging you to come to Christ and to ask him for that perfect test score, that garment that's a wedding garment. And you don't need anything else once you have the garment. Father, we thank you for this time you've given us. We thank you, Father, for your gracious heart in inviting sinners into your presence and that you clothe them with the proper attire. We are mindful, Father, that you are holy and you will not tolerate any sin in your presence. We can't come with our test score. There's nothing to show off when you have a big F on the front of it. Help us, Lord. Be with us. Give us the, the faith even of a mustard seed to say, I want Jesus. I want his righteousness. Please keep me from hanging on to my test score, my own righteousness. Help me to let go of my filthy good deeds that I think is better than the guy next to me. And help me, Lord, to take Christ and Christ alone. Amen. We love you, Father. We bless you. We thank you. We worship you in spirit and in truth. Please save your people tonight. Save all the children, Father. Bring them all in. Let none perish. Let let none leave this camp unregenerated, unconverted. We don't want to have what it says in Hosea, the harvest is past and we're not yet saved. We don't have a lot of sand left in the hourglass. And for some of us, our hourglass is the size of an egg timer. So help us, Lord. Don't let us fritter this time and this opportunity away. And we'll have to give an account for it. We love you, we thank you, and we bless you. For it's in Christ's great name we pray. Amen.